we, we come before you now to be taught by you, not by me. I just pray, Lord, that, that I would be a mouthpiece so that your word, that your message to your church would, would, be, would be heard. And not just heard, but received. And we pray, Lord, that in hearing that we would act upon what we hear. Lord, please use us for your glory. Please propel us on our path of discipleship this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the seven letters to the seven churches. And I even have a worksheet up the back. Uh, if, if you're one of those people who likes to go along and make notes or has a proclivity to get lost and or zone out and, and jump back in uh, uh, halfway through the sermon, this might be helpful to you to keep you uh, um, following along. And... Because we're covering such a big chunk of scripture, we won't be able to delve this morning into all the intricate details. But if you have a burning question, then I would encourage you to send me a text message. My number is up there. Write it down because it won't be there for long. And there's no guarantee that we'll be able to answer those questions here this morning. But if we don't get to it this morning, I will respond later on in the week. So uh, please feel free to send those messages through if you have that burning question. Um, have you ever had an employee review? You know, uh, maybe after you've been in probation in a job for six months and it comes to that time when they kind of sit you down and tell you how you're going. Or um, some, sometimes, uh, you know, they'll do it six-monthly or yearly. And it can be both a good thing but also a bit of an intimidating thing. It's, it's meant to be a, an opportunity to... You know, get feedback on how you're going, what you're doing well, but also to highlight the areas where you need to work harder or where things just aren't measuring up in your workplace. And it, and it helps you stay on track and know, yes, I'm doing the right thing. I am I'm performing or, or maybe I need to pick up in these areas so that I can. Maybe you think you're excelling, but it's actually not good enough. Maybe you might be made aware of something where you've actually dropped the ball. Or maybe... You know where you've messed up, and you know what the boss is going to say when you get in that performance review, and he's going to have some hard things to say about that. But in the end, a performance review is a good thing. It tells you where you're at, what's good, what's bad, and what you need to work on in the future. Keeps you focused, keeps you on track, and focused on what is important. And that's what Jesus is doing here with these seven churches this morning. It's essentially a little performance review for each church. Some of them he goes really hard and he tells them what's up. Some of them he doesn't have anything nasty to say and he just tells them, you guys, I know how you're going, you're doing good, keep going, keep enduring. But he's, he's, he's writing to these seven churches in what is now Turkey or what they used to call Asia. Now, Jesus is keeping them focused. These churches were planted a few decades after Jesus had risen to heaven and seated down at the right hand of the Father. Many of them would have been planted by the apostles themselves or people who were closely associated with the apostles. But now when Jesus is writing these letters through the apostle John, it's a few decades on. These churches have been around for a little while. 
They've experienced the emotional highs of being converted and brought together as a church and and living in love and in community. But they've also experienced that it's kind of gone on for a while. There's the day-to-day of the Christian life and the and the year-to-year of the Christian life. And they have begun to suffer persecution. There are even now uh, people in these churches who have grown up and not known anything else because they have they've been born into the church and they don't know anything different. They don't know the life that they used to have that they've been saved out of. And so they're being persecuted. They're being oppressed. They're realizing that it's actually a pretty long road in the Christian life. They're a minority group in their society that are oppressed by, in many cases, the Jewish, their Jewish neighbors or the, the Roman pagan um, majority because they won't bow down to their gods or, or go along with their cultural practices. And like all people, these churches had to deal with their own sin that welled up within them and challenges Jesus' control on their life. And yet these, these churches are blessed by God in the way that he addresses them specifically with these letters in Revelation 2 and 3. Indeed, the whole book is addressed to these churches, but Jesus singles them out and addresses them specifically in these two chapters. And all the words in these chapters are of things that are connected to the rest of the book. It's not as though the letters are over here and then the rest of all the crazy stuff of Revelation is over here. These things are intricately tied together so that the language that is used in Revelation 2 and 3 is usually illustrated or explained in some other part of the book of Revelation. It all belongs together. And we also see that Revelation, this cycle of seven letters starts the pattern of cycles of seven because later on we'll see seven bowls, seven trumpets and seven scrolls amongst other sevens but in the cycles of seven the letters kind of set a pattern that we will see repeated throughout Revelation. But that's another, it's another story. Today we are here in these letters with individual addresses to individual churches And if you've had a chance to read the whole two chapters, you will notice that they all follow a similar format. They all have a similar pattern. And it's through the pattern that we will be engaging with the text today. We'll see through the pattern seven ways that Jesus speaks to his people. Which in turn means that there are seven things that we ought to see. Seven things that we ought to see in the way that Jesus speaks to his people. Firstly, we see the conqueror speaks to his people. The conquering Jesus speaks to his people. So as we've already seen over the last couple of weeks, Jesus meets with John in a vision on the island of Patmos. And he says to John, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. So the book of Revelation is specifically addressed to these churches, but like the books of Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, even though these books are addressed to specific churches, they're actually for the benefit of the whole church. 
And that's even more clearly shown in Revelation because Jesus addresses it to seven churches, seven being the number of completeness and fullness. There were more than seven churches in that area, but Jesus chooses seven, and he chooses seven that are in different stages of faithfulness, different stages of their life as a church. And in these seven, we get a picture of what it's like for the whole church and the challenges that the whole church throughout time faces. Often when we read these letters, we find ourselves saying, is our church like that? And that's a good question to be asking. Is our church like that? So let's take a closer look at these letters. You see that each one of the seven starts something like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. So each letter is addressed to the angel of the church in such and such a place. It's a bit of an odd way to speak about addressing a letter. Who are these angels? Well, we're told in a few verses earlier that the seven stars that Jesus is holding in his right hand and the seven golden lampstands are symbols. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So they're symbolic. But we still don't know who these angels are. So there's a couple options I'll lay it out before you. It doesn't really matter which one you think is best because the message uh, the intent of the message doesn't change. But I'll just, I'll just fill you in with three options for who these angels are. Just remember that angel is just a regular word for messenger in the Greek. In, in the Bible, it gets used most commonly in association with divine messengers, spiritual messengers sent from God. But in the Greek, it can just mean messenger, like a courier bringing you a message. So it could be that these are spiritual beings, angels that have been set to send messages or set as protectors of these churches, kind of like guardian angels. And in the other parts of the Bible, we get pictures of angels that that God has given certain jobs to do or certain messages to take. So it's not unheard of to have these kind of spiritual beings working in this way. And they're also described as stars and angels, divine beings, have a close connection to stars in the Bible. But it could also be that their messengers are the leaders of the church, the pastors, the teachers, the overseers. They are the mouthpieces of God to the church. So it makes sense to call them messengers. And it makes sense that God would address these letters to the leaders of the churches so that they could share the message. But on the other hand, it's also kind of odd to call the church leaders, angels in the Bible. It doesn't mean it's wrong, it just means it's out of character, I suppose. The third option is that the angels are a kind of symbol, that the angel, that the whole church is an angel in the fact that the whole church is the, the people taking the message into the world. They are the messengers of God, and so they are symbolized, the whole local body, as an angel of God. It seems odd to describe them in one hand as lamps stands, but on the other hand as stars in one sentence, but it wouldn't be unheard of for this kind of genre of writing to do that kind of thing. So whichever of those three you think is the best explanation of the facts, the point remains. The point is that Jesus delivers his message through his light-bearing, 
star messengers to his light-bearing lampstand churches. They need to hear what he has to say and he sends his messengers to bring the communique. Each letter is separately addressed to a local church in ancient Turkey and the conquering Jesus speaks to his people. The conqueror of Satan, sin and death speaks to his people in the past, but even now through these letters. So you who have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next, we meet the conqueror. We see that each letter opens with a little description of what Jesus is like. A little picture into a facet of his glory and his magnificence. Let's just run through them really quick. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The words of him who has the seven spirits, sorry, the, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In these snippets, we see Christ painting a picture of the glory and the beauty of who he is and the magnificence of his glory. He's ruling and in control and eternal and faithful and worthy of our honor and obedience. If somebody writes you a letter or if you come across somebody and, and they start using all their titles, all the, all the achievements that they have, all the letters that they have after their name, Usually it's meant to show their authority, their um, knowledge and their experience in that arena. Now, if you received one of those letters, it could be for your benefit. They might be writing a, a referral on your behalf or, um, or they might be writing a letter of recommendation for you. So you want them to say, hey, this guy, this really important person, is actually thinks I'm a good guy. But also, using all the titles could be a bad thing. You know, maybe you've handed in an assignment and your lecturer, who knows a lot more than you, needs to take you to task for some of the things that you've written in your assignment. Here in Revelation, Jesus is doing both. He's both revealing that he is the great God, he's the, he is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and he's on our side and he is for us. But at the same time, he's saying, I actually need to take you to task for some things. There's some stuff that you need to listen to me and I have the authority to tell you what's what. He will commend them and he will condemn them. He's the powerful king. He's their rightful divine sovereign and he has the right to say the hard things and the positive things for their own good. You who have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next, we see the conqueror commends our work. In this third part, we see the pattern of the seven letters that Jesus knows where his people are excelling and he lets them know what he approves. He tells them, this is going great. I see your work. I see your faithful endurance. For instance, he says to the church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love 
and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed your first. Jesus is pleased by their faithfulness. They work hard, they persevere and they show their love so much so that they're actually in a better place now than they were before. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to be able to have Jesus say to you, I see how you're working and I see how you're improving. What a comfort that would be. Especially in the midst of these churches who are facing persecution, who have the hard times. Jesus was aware. He knew. It's a comfort to know that Jesus is ruling and reigning and yet aware of what is going on in the life of his churches in every place. He was walking among the lampstands. He knew well what was going on there. But he also knows well what's going on here at Eastgate. If Jesus was to write a letter to us today, what would he commend us for? What would he say, yes, I see that, and that is good? I wish that he would be able to say, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I would hope that he would be able to say that of us. I'm not sure we could necessarily figure it out ourselves, but we do know what Jesus loves, we do know what Jesus approves, and we ought to chase after that so that he can say these things, so that he can commend us. It's worth noting that sometimes, though, in these seven letters, Jesus doesn't actually have anything nice to say about them, and he has to go straight to the hard stuff. Some of them... They didn't have, didn't have anything hard to say about and just went straight to encouraging them. I, I want us to be in that latter one. That Jesus doesn't have anything um, hard to say, but only good things to say. But it's, a, it's, it's an encouragement to know that what we do in this life matters. What we do in the church matters. It's not likely that Jesus will be sending us an individual letter like he did to these churches, but he will pass judgment on what we have done. He will say, this is good or otherwise. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, each one's work will become manifest for the day of the Lord will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Christ survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through a fire. You who have an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next comes the hard truths. In these letters, Jesus picks on on what's going well, but he usually needs to make some comments on where the churches are failing. It's that part of the performance review that we, we don't really like, that's most uncomfortable. Jesus has some hard things to say. He won't pull his punches. 
This was too important to soften the message to make it more palatable. And Jesus comes down hard on these churches because he loves them. Just like a loving father disciplines the children that he loves. The conquering king is not satisfied to have his churches being unenthused, half-hearted with false teaching, sexual immorality, dead hearts and lukewarm faith. He wants them to push back against the ways of the world and stand firm. He wants them to conquer, not literally going out to battle with swords, but spiritually. He calls them to stand firm, to strengthen themselves in the tough times and get rid of the ungodliness among them. Churches can't just coast through. They couldn't rest on their laurels as those churches who had been established by the apostles. They had to endure and stand firm. Their years of experience as Christians didn't mean that they had done all their hard work and now they could just just kind of coast on through to the end. Brothers and sisters, I think these seven letters are representative of of all kinds of churches throughout time. We ought, what we ought to do when we read this is ask seriously, which of these best represents us? In what way are we as a church community failing to honour Christ? What parts of your church do you think Jesus would condemn? Are we all activity and no heart like the church in Ephesus? Are we accepting of false teaching like the church in Pergamon? Are we accepting of ungodly expressions of sexuality like the church in Thyatira? Do we look like Christians on the outside while actually being far from God on the inside like Sardis? Are we lukewarm to the matters of faith like the church in Laodicea? Well, if I had to pick one that I wanted us to think about most today, one that probably hits home hardest at Eastgate, I think it's Laodicea. Laodicea was a wealthy city, like we are wealthy. Laodicea had a solid financial system, like we do. Laodicea had a reputation for their medical industry, like we have a reputation for our public health care. You might think that we're a pretty modest church of middle-class people, but in the scope of the world, we are filthy rich. We have an abundance of earthly possessions. We get paid holidays and maternity leave. We get to stuff our faces with endless varieties of food. We get to buy huge houses and stuff them full of trinkets. We get to complain about the quality of our clothes while filling our cupboards with more clothes that we got on sale. We get to waste our hours being mildly entertained by a gimmick on a screen. We get to worry that our kids might only ever have a solid job as a cleaner and not be a white-collar professional. We have so much, so many opportunities, so many options, and it distracts us from what's really important, like it did for the Laodiceans. We love Jesus, no doubt about that. Nobody questions that. But I think our love is diluted by our worldly interests. 
We're puffed up by pride and arrogance and we dare to think that we can just coast through this life while busying ourselves with selfish pursuits. We're half and half. We're people here at Eastgate that try and play both sides, a bit of the world and a bit of Jesus. Everybody's happy, right? When was the last time you seriously thought about the challenges that Jesus had for people? Can you honestly say that Jesus is your all, that you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength? Can you honestly say that Christ is your all? Can you honestly say that you love him more than your own family members? Can you say that you love him more than your own life? I'm guessing you're probably like me and think abstractly, if push came to shove and I had to die a martyr's death, that I would stand firm to the end and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't give up my faith in Jesus. I would be faithful to the end. But that's not the reality that I face. The reality that I face is I can't even be faithful week to week. I can't be faithful in the morning to get up and speak to the Lord whom I love. We're happy to talk big picture. Jesus changes lives and all that. But in the day-to-day reality, are we more likely just lukewarm? We stood up before and we sang, Thou and thou only first in my heart, High King of Heaven, my treasure thou art. Is that really our reality? We want Jesus. We truly do. Nobody's denying that. But I'm sure that we've been infected by the world that we live in. And we're like the world around us, distracted by many other things, half-hearted in our devotion. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We think that we have it all. We think that we're spiritually healthy. We're doing okay. Is that really true? Or are we just deceiving ourselves? For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, if Jesus were to arrive here today... He would expose us for the half-hearted, selfish people we are. The way that we present ourselves to the world is the opposite of our spiritual condition. You who have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church, this is hard to hear, but we need to hear it. There are consequences for the way that we live. The conqueror warns us. In Revelation, Jesus warns his churches that there are consequences for their actions. 
Even though they are the saved people of God, our actions, our attitudes, our affections matter. And Jesus will discipline those whom he loves. And throughout these seven letters, there is a recognition of failure and there is a warning. This cannot go on. Things must change. It's not good enough. In the case of the loveless Ephesians, Jesus says, repent or I will destroy your local church. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's serious stuff. The Ephesians, if the Ephesians didn't repent, Jesus himself said he would take away their local church. He warned them that there was consequences, real-time consequences to their failure. But there was an opportunity to repent. If only they would turn away from what they were doing. You who have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The conqueror urges us. The warnings are not harsh commands of a God who is aloof and doesn't really care. These warnings and these urgings are for the benefit of God's people, brought by a loving king. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus brings the hard word of truth and warns of consequences to his church, but he lovingly urges them, exhorting them to to change their ways, to change their lives and to live. The theme of exhortation is repent and endure. Only hold fast of what you have till I come. These churches have received the good news. They've received salvation. They've received the Holy Spirit. They have everything they need to live the life of Christian faithfulness. But they must turn from their failures and endure to the end. Friends, the whole Christian life is one of repentance. And it's, and it's the one that the conquering Christ calls his churches to. When there is sin failure and rebellion, we must recognize it and turn away, turn around. We need to spiritually run away from our sin. Church, if I am right and our church is truly lukewarm like the Laodiceans, neither cold nor hot, then what kind of repentance should we look for? What kind of repentance should we seek? Well, Jesus says to the Laodiceans, those lukewarm Christians, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Instead of being caught up in the riches of this world, we must seek the riches of Christ. We must reject the attitudes of the world that tell us to chase careers and romance and family goals, material wealth, exotic experiences, sexual fulfillment. Whatever the flavor of the month is, we must push it away and seek the riches of Christ. We must first seek the kingdom of heaven and Christ's righteousness, knowing that he will give us all the other stuff that we really need in life. And Christ's worth far surpasses all the things of this world. So why bother chasing after them? When he will give us wealth and riches that will surpass this world, 
He'll give us eternal life. And yet we want to chase after the things of this present darkened age. Repent of your half-heartedness and turn to Christ. Come and be clothed in his robes of righteousness. Come and have your eyes opened so that you can see through the fog of this secular and materialistic world that we live in. Come and gain riches that are eternal and of far greater value than anything your savings account can ever buy you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You who have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lastly, we see when Jesus speaks to his churches, he makes promises. The conquering king, Jesus, promises reward and prosperity eternally to those who respond to his message. This is a light of hope that even though we need to be chastised, Jesus will abundantly bless his people who are faithful and endure. It's an encouragement for us that even though we may have sinned, even though we may have stumbled, even though we may have fallen, if we turn back to him, he will restore us. He will give us honor and glory. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the presence of the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, they will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with them with an iron rod, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. What a promise that if we turn to God, if we, if we repent and seek after him, if we live for Jesus, we get to reign with him. We get to rule with him. We get to share in the authority that he has received from the Father. And it's a really unequal deal. You endure for a lifetime and you can reign with Christ in eternity. You seek Christ in this life and you can have the wealth beyond imagining in the next. It's a disproportionate blessing. Be faithful for a little while and be blessed forever. And this is the joy of the Christian. While we suffer, while we strive and struggle against the flesh, while we suffer ridicule and shame in this world and potentially persecution, Christ will vindicate us and lift us up in honor in the end. It might be a hard road to get there, The Christian life is not easy, but we must repent, remain faithful, hold on to Jesus, and we can receive what he has promised to his people. And friends, if you are not yet a Christian this morning, I want to let you know that this is open to you. You don't need to be a better person. You don't need to meet certain qualifications for God. All he asks is that you would repent from your sins 
and have faith and trust in him. That all he asked of you to receive these blessings. It won't be easy, but he will bless you abundantly if you would turn and serve him. You who have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I ask you, what would be our performance review if Jesus was here? What would Jesus applaud? What would he condemn? What do we need to repent of? This morning, Jesus speaks to us through his scriptures like he spoke to those churches. He shows himself to us by revealing some of his glory in the scriptures. He will commend our good works. And he will judge them in the end and and they will be seen for what they are. But he also condemns our failures. He has warned us that there are consequences to how we live. There's consequences to how our churches behave. And he urges us to repent And if we do, he will fulfill his promises to us and bless us eternally. Christ is the conqueror. And if we join him in his conquering, we will sit with him in eternity. What a blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, risen Christ, conquering King, we thank you that you are ministering to your churches through your word, through your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that even though you have gone from us physically and even though you are seated at the right hand of the Father, you are not unaware of what is going on in your church. And in fact, you are still working there. And we ask, Lord, that you would work in our church today. Please, Lord, show us where we are failing to live the life that you've called us to. Show us where we are wandering. Lord, we get blinded by the world. We get blinded by our sins. So we ask that you would open our eyes and that you would show us the splendor of Christ and his magnificence and the riches that he holds out for us. Lord, show us Christ so that we can run after him, so we can chase after him with all of our hearts. Not just with our spare time, not just with our our traditions, Lord, but with our whole lives, our whole hearts, our whole minds, with all of our strength. Lord, please show us Christ. Please enable us to repent. And please draw us to yourself so that we might sit with you in eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.